This is Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Construction Law Today is a podcast about current topics in American construction law. Your host for Construction Law Today is David Suchar. Our podcast, Construction Law Today, began in July 2019 and is now in its third season. In our first two seasons, my good friend Buzz Tarlow produced 25 episodes on a variety of timely and interesting topics in the field of construction law. In our upcoming season, I expect to produce similar podcasts at the rate of about one new podcast per month. As always, we welcome your questions and comments. Please let us know what we can do to improve the podcast. The contact information for Construction Law Today is found at the end of this podcast. On behalf of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law, thanks for listening. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we have a very timely topic and a fantastic guest. The topic today is cyber insurance, and this follows up on our insurance coverage for construction podcast episodes five and 15. And our guest is Kent Collier. First, the podcast topic, which again is cyber insurance. Large construction companies, mid-sized construction companies, construction and design firms of all sizes face the same types of threats that others do in the cyber world. So we're talking about ransomware, malware, data breaches, and some of the more traditional fraudulent schemes like fund transfer fraud and spoofing emails, all of which come under the umbrella of items that may be protected by cyber insurance. Today, we have with us a great guest, Kent Collier, who is the Senior Vice President of Grayling Insurance Brokerage and Risk Consulting. Kent is a very active member of the ABA Forum on Construction Law. He's attended roughly 20 national meetings since 2013. He and I served together on the steering committee of Division 7. That's the Insurance Surety and Liens Division. And earlier in his career, Kent was on the steering committee of the Young Lawyers Division. He's also active in Division Three for design. Kent has been recognized for his success as a lawyer by Georgia Super Lawyers. And since becoming an insurance broker, he was recently recognized as a young top professional under 40 by ENR New England. Kent and I have worked together for mutual clients in the construction and insurance industry for many years and have been good friends for all of that time. So Kent, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate you inviting me on. Look forward to our chat. I do as well. So Kent, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your practice at Grayling Insurance Brokerage and Risk Consulting? Sure. So Grayling is a specialty insurance brokerage and risk consulting firm. We are based out of the Atlanta area, although our folks are spread out all over as are our clients. I actually work remotely out of my home near Portland, Maine, but I'm from Atlanta originally. I grew up in Metro Atlanta. I went to the University of Virginia, 
majoring in history and economics, then went on to Emory Law, was a federal clerk for a year, then practiced construction law for about nine years at Sutherland, Asheville, and Brennan in Atlanta. In 2015, I decided to make a career shift. I'm sure, like you, I was a little tired of billing by the tenth of the hour, so I wanted to do something different and got connected with Grayling. So Grayling, we procure insurance and help our clients manage risk. Our clients are primarily professional services firms related to the construction industry. So that's architects, engineers, consultants, environmental firms, construction managers, EPC contractors and design builders, specialty trades, and attorneys. So our our clients are all performing professional services. They are a mix of in the office, behind the desk, working on computer type folks and people that go in the field and do physical construction work or other professional services. And our clients, like I mentioned earlier, are really spread out all over the country. We don't focus on a particular geography or size. We have small solo practitioner clients and we have billion dollar companies that are clients and we're helping all these firms manage their risk. Cyber insurance. So for that wide range of clientele that you just talked about, what are the cyber risks? Why do clients need cyber insurance? That's a very good question, Dave, and and quite a broad one. And I'll start with the simple answer, which is money. Right now, cyber hackers and bad actors across the world are trying to get money out of people that have money, which means ongoing successful businesses in the United States. So any firm that has monetary assets is a target for a hacker somewhere in the world. And there's different avenues of threats and different mechanisms to try to get money out of ongoing concerns. But what we're seeing most often right now is hackers uh, trying to get into a firm's computer system and lock that down and use that to get money, to extort money. That's the biggest threat. And it's across all business sizes and types. Are there any threats that you see being more prevalent in the construction and design industry? It's really that ransomware avenue. And it doesn't tend to make a difference whether the target firm is a computer-based, we're designing something electronically all day, every day, versus a firm that's purely construction working in the field. If it's a firm that's got money in the bank and a computer system that is needed to operate, then it's a target for a ransomware event. And certainly some firms have data that is more valuable than others. So we are seeing ransomware version two or three at this point where valuable documents are particularly held for ransom or corrupted. And and eventually we will likely see some claim in this industry where a document is stolen, an electronic record is stolen for the value of what's in that document itself. Confidential plans to an embassy overseas or the bidding information for a contractor being stolen by a competitor, something like that. What's the the most common threat right now is still ransomware trying to get at the assets of the firm. Can you give us a brief history of cyber insurance coverage in response to threats like that? Sure. So cyber insurance as an independent coverage 
kind of came about in the 90s during the dot-com boom uh, because firms that were involved in processing electronic information were worried about liability to third parties. And so cyber started in that context. And it didn't get much further than that until the early 2000s. In 2003, California enacted the first broad notification statute. So if you have information, either personally identifiable information, health information, or credit card information, and you get hacked, California wants you to notify the people who are affected. And lots of other states implemented the same sorts of schemes in the early 2000s. I think every state has one now. Uh, And there's also federal and then there's European and, and other schemes have to be followed. So now it's really expanded much beyond third party because you process something incorrectly. It's, it's much more expansive and there's first and third party coverages built into cyber. What are the types of insurance policies that might respond to a cyber event? Another good question. There are multiple different policies that could be implicated. Most significant firms in the design and construction industry buy dozens of different insurance policies covering different exposures. With cyber, you're primarily looking at a standalone cyber policy that has multiple different coverage parts. Even without a standalone cyber policy or if your cyber policy isn't robust enough in terms of coverage or has enough limit, there are other policies that could be implicated. There are crime policies that firms carry that could matter in a cyber situation depending on what the actual claim is. Many firms who buy professional liability insurance will find cyber coverage for third-party claims built into professional liability. That coverage is changing a bit right now, but some firms do have that. There have been attempts to get coverage out of general liability policies, commercial general liability. I don't see much opportunity for that going forward. I think underwriters have been pretty good about boxing in cyber as something that's not covered on a GL policy. They want to look the standalone. Yeah, and I've I've done some claims under CGL policies and commercial crime policies. And my understanding currently is that ISO, the Insurance Services Office, has their standard form CGL policies meant to write out the broad range of cyber insurance liabilities. Is that your understanding? Yeah, that, that's right, Dave. I mean, when you look at GL... First, you got two big issues on a GL policy. The first is you need property damage for the majority of your insuring agreement. And most underwriters have taken the position that damaging electronic data isn't property damage, and they've added endorsements that make that clearer. There's also a coverage part under your typical ISO CGL policy for personal and advertising injury. And that includes some claims that relate to publication of information that libels or slanders or violates a right of privacy. Right. The cases have pretty much come down that if a third party is publishing the data, that's not what a CGL policy covers. And even if it could cover that, you start to look at the endorsements that have been added by most underwriters and you're just not going to find coverage on CGL. Right. So if you're stuck with commercial crime coverage for fund transfer fraud or spoofing uh, for events like that, and then these standalone cyber policies for other schemes and crimes, what does the standalone cyber coverage cover? So there's lots of different forms out there. There are nearly 100 different insurers that offer standalone cyber coverage. 
And across all those different insurers, the forms vary drastically. But painting with a broad brush, in your typical cyber standalone insurance policy, you have a set of insuring agreements that are for third-party liability, and you have a set of insuring agreements for first-party losses. So thinking about this from the insurance perspective, if I'm a construction or design firm buying this policy, the first-party coverage is what I'm most interested in because it's what is going to protect me if my system gets locked down. And that's the threat avenue we're seeing most commonly right now. So that's going to be uh, responding to a breach, doing forensic analysis to figure out how it happened and how to stop it from happening. That's the cost for recovering the system, recovering data, restoring corrupted or damaged data. It includes credit monitoring, notification costs that you may have to implement based on how these different statutes work. It includes fines and penalties that you may have to pay as the insured to one of these regulatory bodies. It includes the payments, the extortion payments or the ransom payments you have to make to the hacker to stop the situation. And all the different breach issues, you actually get a breach coach that helps you negotiate the outcome of the event and coaches you through the whole process, there's a significant expense to that. So that's all covered under the first party part. And then one of the biggest issues, if you do have an event like this, you're out of work for a period of time. So you have business interruption coverage, uh, similar to a property policy. If your building is blown over in a hurricane and you can't work for two weeks, you get business interruption for that two weeks of outage. Same with a cyber event. If you can't use your computer system or network for two weeks while you're dealing with an event, and you have two weeks of lost income. That's part of the first party coverage. And then there's reputational harm and public relations type expenses that are built in. So that's all first party coverage in a standalone cyber that the insurer is going to invoke if they have an issue with their system. I'm sure because this area is developing so quickly that you face skepticism from some clients who say, this has never happened to us before. This insurance is quite expensive. We may be too small of a target to really need insurance like this. What do you tell clients who are giving you those sort of issues in response to discussion about cyber coverage? It's a fair point. You get that from a lot of folks who've had experience with insurance companies in their lives. And their belief is you pay the premium expecting a claim payment. And then when the claim comes, all you get is denials and reservations and lawyers involved. My experience with cyber is that the insurers are really well set up to respond to a claim. They've got vendors and consultants that are part of a panel ready to jump in when there's a breach and not only coach you through the situation and help you with an attorney in terms of notification and response, but also the true IT consultants who help you fix the issue, restore, and get back up and running. So we've had a number of clients go through this in the last two years since the pandemic started in March of 2020. The number of claims in this arena have multiplied dramatically. And we've had a lot of clients go through it. I'd say about 10% of our client base has had a reportable standalone cyber claim in the past two years. And some of those claims have reached well over a million dollars. So we've seen claims pay it out. There's no question about that. Certainly anytime you have 
a reportable claim on an insurance policy, there's going to be issues of coverage and reservation of rights letters and even potential need for coverage counsel. And, and I won't say that every single one of those claims has gone perfectly smoothly and has not involved coverage counsel, but the vast majority have not. These insurers understand what they're insuring and they respond the way they need to when there's a claim. They are charging more now for that because the claims experience has gotten worse and the the dollars in terms of claims have increased significantly. That's a market issue. We'll talk about that, I'm sure, over the course of the podcast. But in terms of a, a client getting what they're paying for, we've seen some really impressive responses from cyber insurers in this environment in the context of pretty inexpensive insurance policies. And I'll give you an example. We've got one client, about a $50 million engineering firm. Their system got shut down late on a Friday, which is typical of these scenarios. So we're going into the weekend. They can't get into their network at all. They're getting a ransom demand from a hacker. We got the cyber insurer notified within minutes of the event starting. They had breach coaches on the line. They had mitigation starting over the weekend. They had on-site consultants Monday morning in their office. This particular firm decided they didn't want to pay the ransom. So there was a lot more backup and recovery and making sure that that was going to be watertight and that the hacker couldn't continue to get in through the efforts that they were implementing. It took them 12 days to fully get back up and running. After all that, they had about a $900,000 loss on a million dollar policy. The premium for that policy was about 12 grand and they had a $10,000 retention. So you can kind of see the claim dynamic and why the market's shifting if there's lots of those situations happening. But in this particular case, client got exactly what they bargained for. They bought a $12,000 policy for a million dollars of coverage and they got close to a million dollars worth of coverage out of it. We'll break some of that down in the next segment. Uh, We'll be right back with some more construction law today. PMA Consultants is a leading provider of project advisory, construction claims analysis, and expert witness services. Our experts have a wealth of experience in identifying, analyzing, preparing, and presenting claims and disputes on construction and engineering projects. PMA is proud to be a longtime supporter of the ABA Construction Law Forum and its members. Connect with our construction claims experts on our website, pmaconsultants.com. Welcome back to the podcast. Kent, when we broke, we were talking about a specific instance of a cyber threat and how cyber insurance responded to it. And it had me thinking about third-party losses and some of the more famous data breaches, for example, Target, Equifax, events like that. How does cyber insurance respond to third-party losses? So there's a different set of insuring agreements in a typical standalone cyber policy for third-party liability. 
that's if the insured's operations network cause loss to another party in the cyber realm. So you think back to Target, that was an HBAC vendor who was hacked and they tunneled through because there was a connection between that vendor and Target. That's the type of coverage in a third-party liability insuring agreement. Uh, There's also loss of data or breach of an obligation to keep information private. And then related to that is if your network issue or interruption or loss of private information leads to a third party having stuff out in the world that they don't want disclosed, like health information, credit card information, what's called personal identifiable information, which is like a name plus a social security number and address, then your liability to those third parties to notify them, to monitor their credit, to respond to the breach, that's all part of that third party liability coverage as well. So there are third party liability coverages that deal with privacy issues. Is that right? Yeah, it's interesting. These insuring agreements are worded rather broadly and they talk about network related issues and then privacy related issues. I think most underwriters mean for this to say if you're supposed to keep a document private on your network and you're breached and therefore the document is no longer private, that's where the third-party liability coverage comes into play. What's interesting in our world of construction and design is that you often enter into a contract where you agree to keep information confidential. And the way these policies are worded is that they apply to that scenario, even if the reason something's not confidential is not because of a network breach, but just because you gave the information to someone else or you lost a device that has confidential information on it. So one day we will see a big breach of confidentiality claim in the construction arena, and it'll be litigated with respect to coverage under a cyber policy because the words of the insuring agreement apply to an obligation to keep something confidential and not meeting that obligation. Do the standalone cyber policies cover defense for issues like this or just indemnity, just the cost of the loss? So there are parts of the insuring agreements that talk about defense. It's not something that I've seen come up because the third-party coverages are not what we're seeing implicated in the typical claim. So I haven't seen that really addressed or litigated, but the expectation is that the cost of defense of a third party suing you because of breach of confidentiality or they got hacked because you got hacked and the vector was through you, uh, that your defense costs there be covered under the language of the insuring agreements. We just haven't seen those claims with any kind of frequency and haven't been able to really test the cyber insurer's capability of handling that. We're well used to other third party liability insurers defending and how they handle that. We know how it works under CGL or professional liability, but cyber is a little untested with the third-party side. Speaking of the claims that you have seen, you talked about a relative success story about a claim where the insurer responded well to the cyber event. What are best practices for your clients in terms of responding to cyber events in order to preserve and maximize their insurance coverage? So the biggest issue is fast notification of the insurance company and involving the people that they want to include. 
the cyber insurers all have panels set up of consultants, both the attorneys that help you get coached through the breach and the IT vendors that do the actual IT work related to a breach. The problem I see some clients going down is that they've got their vendors set up that already help manage their IT on an ongoing basis. And if something happens, they're naturally just going to call whoever they would call for any IT issue and jump after the problem because you go into panic mode when all of a sudden the whole system's locked down, right? But the cyber insurers want to know they're not going to cover anything that happens before they get notice. And then they want to use their preferred vendors at their preferred rates. Ideally, you've negotiated that ahead of time so that a client's ongoing relationship is pre-approved or fits in with the panel for the carrier, but that may not be the case. So you don't want to go too far down the road where you're engaging your preferred IT person for a few days. And then then the cyber insurer gets involved and they say, well, we we don't pay for that person. We pay for our person. So another lesson, it sounds like is much like with other insurance policies, provide notice to the insurer early and often. Right, yeah, I mean, these are essentially claims made policies that they get triggered as soon as there is an event. It's an occurrence-based policy for the first party coverage and a claims made policy for the third party coverage. So the second you have an occurrence, a cyber event, you got a notice for the first party. The second you have someone alleging something against you, you need to notice for the third party. Any delay there can really jeopardize coverage and how much is covered. And again, it's really about if you do something for several days on your own, and then you're looking to get compensated for that, you may have a significant coverage issue. These are fast-paced events that happen. So the best practice is really the second you know something is going on, your first call is to your IT director or your third-party IT vendor, and then your second call has got to be to your insurer. You mentioned that insurers are quickly and effectively processing these claims, but that there are some coverage issues that have resulted. What are the most common coverage issues you're seeing? There's two things that we've seen. The first one, and this isn't something that our clients have seen, but it's, it's an issue I've heard about from others in the industry. It's a disconnect between the insured's understanding of what their policy covers and what it actually covers. And it usually is a lack of first-party coverage. So when cyber insurance was developing, it's still developing. It's still an evolving product. You could buy the third-party coverage without the first party. And we saw a lot of clients do that because it was less expensive and they didn't really know what they needed. Nowadays, I think everyone understands you need the first party coverage. That's where the claims are. That's where the action is. But if you didn't pay the extra premium for the first party coverage, then you don't have it. So I've heard of some out in the industry who bought the first party coverage. Then they had a ransomware event and say, oh, I got a cyber policy. Let's submit the claim. Well, my loss as a first party on ransomware isn't covered if I didn't buy the coverage part. And it sounds like ransomware events and the potential damage from them are increasing. Exactly. That's one thing I've heard about. We haven't seen it with our clients because we we push. If you're going to buy inland cyber, you need to buy all the insuring agreements and the first parties where the action is. The other thing that I haven't seen personally, but I could see this happening. There are, there are a lot more detailed underwriting questions occurring right now. So 
two years ago, you could submit a one-page application that had very little more than your name, the type of company, and your revenues, and you could get a cyber policy for relatively a few dollars. Now, because the, the world has changed with claims, it's a much more involved insurance underwriting process. So you have a 10-page application with supplements, and there's a lot more questions to go into your IT infrastructure and what you're doing with updates to your systems and software and whether you have multi-factor authentication enabled for email access and accessing your virtual private network and getting into remote drives. There's all these different things. And a lot of it's just very detailed, technical, IT-related stuff that us lawyers may not really know or understand, and a lot of clients don't either. So what I'm getting at is with all this detailed underwriting information out there now and all these questions that come back from each underwriter, we'll probably get into a scenario where the answers to those questions weren't accurate. And we'll have insurers really investigating, okay, here's the access for this hacker. It was through email that didn't have MFA enabled. But when we asked you on the application if MFA was enabled, you said, yes, it's required for everybody. So that's a disconnect. And is that ultimately an inaccurate and fraudulent answer on the application? I think we will see coverage litigation over that. And the only real way to address that is make sure you're answering truthfully in your applications and following all the things you say you're going to do when you submit that application. What about a, a practical question for you in terms of limits? You work with a broad range of clientele. What are those clients doing in terms of the limits they get for their standalone cyber policies? That's an excellent question. It's a tricky one because I think that many firms are underinsured in this arena. Certainly, all the events of the last two years and all the high-profile cyber issues in the world and, and the news of peer firms going through situations has highlighted the need for the coverage and the need for appropriate limit, but it's still a little up in the air because there's not a really good industry benchmark. Most firms, when they started buying cyber insurance a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago at most, most firms started with what I call a starter policy of a million dollars. And maybe they've grown those limits as they've become more attuned to the risk or as they've grown as a firm. Maybe they have. I mean, there are firms in the hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue that still have a million dollar cyber policy. That's just not going to cut it if they have a true worst case scenario ransomware event. In terms of advice to firms, I think we're going to get to a place where most firms are buying between three and 5% of their annual gross revenue and cyber limits. And the reason I get to that number is largely based on the ransom demands that we see. The typical ransom demand is 1% to 3% of gross revenue. You also mentioned that during COVID time, claims have increased. What has that done to the cyber insurance market? It's definitely shifted the market dramatically. You can see how claims would go up during COVID. You have a lot of people working at home. They're on unsecured networks and maybe unsecured devices, and they're moving around a lot more. Firms have had a lot less control over their equipment and what people are doing electronically. And it's just been a, a good environment for hackers to take advantage of these circumstances. The result has been more and more of these claims on policies that have historically had very low premiums. 
And that's caused the market to just be upside down. For many, many years, cyber underwriters made immense profits. Even though they charged low premiums, they wrote a lot of these policies. They didn't really have a lot of claims. So it made sense. Now it's the reverse. So what we've seen in addition to the deeper underwriting that I mentioned, we're seeing rates go up dramatically. And when I say dramatically, I mean really dramatically. Doubling, tripling of premiums, 100 plus percent increases. Uh, depending on the starting point and the status of a firm's controls. And we're seeing retentions or deductibles go up quite a bit as well. What's something surprising about this industry, about cyber insurance that folks wouldn't expect who don't have as much experience in it as you do? So one thing that I've always found surprising about cyber claims is that when you lose money because you voluntarily part with it because you were tricked into sending it to the wrong place, that's typically not a cyber claim. It's a crime claim. Yep. So before this recent trend in ransomware events, the claim we saw most often was someone getting tricked by a bad actor through what we call social engineering. Spoofing that's, emails, things yeah, like that. Yeah, to send money in the wrong place. It was often you get an email from the CEO of your firm, but you don't look at the email address and realize his name is misspelled by a letter. And it says, hey, that payment that's supposed to go here, well, wire it there. Right. And you don't go through the right control process to call or double check or verify in some way. And then you send it to the wrong place. And then you realize it later because someone's calling you, hey, where's my money? Oh, well, I wired it to you. I didn't get it. Uh, you figured out, oh, I wired it to North Korea. Well, that's actually a crime loss, not a cyber loss. Under most people's cyber coverage, or if it is a cyber loss, it's heavily sublimited and kind of coexists alongside crime. So that's something, that's an interesting interplay that has to be worked out. And one of the more surprising things about cyber coverage generally that I've seen. What else can construction lawyers and other construction industry participants do in response to or to prepare for cyber threats? So I think most firms now understand the threats are out there and they've multiplied. So hopefully by now, any firm that relies on computers and a network is doing what they should with respect to IT controls and preparation. And certainly, if a firm hasn't been paying attention to that side of the house, one, they probably already had a claim by now. Two, if they've applied for cyber insurance, probably had a really hard time obtaining it. So that's sort of the upfront preparation is really get your house in order with respect to IT, make sure your vendors and your in-house folks are doing the right thing. As lawyers, I'd say help clients understand what they're agreeing to with these vendors. You know, we do a lot of contract review for our clients. And it's usually construction and professional services agreements related to project work or leases, maybe for, for firms going through getting space. But we've had a few clients send us their cloud vendor agreements or their third-party IT, outsourced IT professional agreements. These things are like sham contracts. They have limitations of liability of like $1,000. They're consumer retail-oriented agreements. They're not professional services agreements like we see in the construction industry. And if you have a situation and it truly is the fault of an IT person or company that was supposed to be protecting you, you're not going to be able to get much out of the standard unedited agreements we see in the IT world. So I think attorneys need to be attuned to that. 
to help advise their clients on how to properly negotiate those agreements. Kent, this has been great, very informative. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, enjoyed it. You have been listening to Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. All rights relating to this podcast are owned and controlled by the American Bar Association. No reproduction or reuse of this podcast is permissible without the express written consent of the American Bar Association. For more information about Construction Law Today, or if you have any questions or comments, you may contact our host, David Suchar, at david.suchar at maslin.com. Our podcast is produced with the assistance of Peak Recording Studios in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you for listening and look for our next edition of Construction Law Today.